Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to turn in your, the copy of your scriptures with me to the book of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1, in a moment we'll read first three verses, and then we will skip down to verses 14 through 18. Don't worry, we will come back and hit the verses in between as well. The year 2020 has been quite a year, to say the least. It was a year that many of us perhaps did not expect. It's not been an easy year. We've had a whole new set of vocabulary that we've had to learn over the course of 11 months, like social distancing. From pandemic to economic struggles to the election to political debate to murder hornets. All of this has put us in one big societal stew that has stirred around more and more, which has resulted in an experiment on how the human psyche will be able to cope with it all. I don't know exactly where you are right now. Maybe you're weary from it all. Maybe you just want it all to end. Maybe you just want to crawl into a hole and have everyone else leave you alone. Maybe you want to crawl out of your hole so people won't leave you alone. Maybe you're scared. Scared of the future. Scared for your health. Scared for what bad news tomorrow might hold. Maybe you're pessimistic. Maybe you're trying to be optimistic. Could it get any worse? Probably. Maybe you're cynical. Maybe you've just had enough of it already. Maybe you just desperately know, you want to know that it's going to end. 2020 has been burdensome, it's been difficult. It's been troubling. It has been, perhaps in a word, chaotic, without any order, without any security, without any certainty, and certainly without any peace. And now we enter into the Christmas season, a Christmas season that might be different than other Christmases, given what's going on. 
Christmas itself, by itself, sometimes can seem chaotic. We're busy. We're trying to push through it all to the end of the year. If the Christmas season is sometimes chaos, how much more vulnerable are we to the chaos given this year? In fact, I was in Hobby Lobby just the other day, and there was a sign there that said this, Welcome to our Christmas chaos. Like it was something to be embraced. Like it was something that we should revel in, something that we should love and something that we should accept and that we're actually inviting people into our chaos. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in chaos. I want to be out of the chaos. I want to be free from chaos. And I think if we're honest, no one wants to remain in chaos You want and desire for there to be an end. You want there to be light at the end of the tunnel. And there is a reason why you don't want to remain in chaos, and it's this, because God has not designed you to remain in chaos. His design and his plan for mankind was to bring them out of chaos, to remove them from the chaos, to even transform the chaos into something better, something filled with hope, something filled with joy, something filled with life. This is a theme in the Bible, a theme that moves from chaos to what we would call cosmos, peace, order, security. When everything is made right, once and for all. When, cert- when uncertainty and doubt and fear are removed. When everything is ordered the way that God intended it to be. If we feel like life is chaotic now, what do we need? We need the hope of God's cosmos. We need the hope of a future, the hope of joy, the hope of peace, the hope of rest, the hope of glory. And this is what Christmas is all about. Jesus Christ being born of a virgin, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. It's the hope for all of mankind, the hope that the universe will be made right again. So with this in mind, would you stand with me as we read from John chapter 1? I'll read the first three verses. And then I will skip down to verse 14 to verse 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, please give me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, with clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and liberty. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. With these words that we have just read, we have the promise of Christmas cosmos put before our eyes. That it might fill our hearts, that it might flood our minds, that we realize that what we need right now is we need some good news. And this good news centers upon Jesus Christ. Christ, upon his birth, upon his life, upon his death, upon his resurrection, upon his ascension, upon his interceding for you and for me right now. Do you want good news? This is not pie in the sky good news. This is true, eternal, powerful, life transforming news. Jesus must be at the very center of our lives. He must be the sun that everything in our life revolves around. It is his gravitational pull that holds everything together. He will hold you together. He will sustain your life. He will give stability to your life. He will give meaning and purpose to your life. He will direct your life. He will protect your life. He will lead your life until the very end. It is He alone who brings you out of the chaos and ushers you into His perfect peace, His unfailing and ultimately unending cosmos when all is made right and good and true once again, when everything that is broken is fixed. So where are we to begin? Well, as we think about John 1, let's go back to the very beginning. Genesis 1.1. If you want to turn there for a moment, keeping your finger in John. But let's look at Genesis 1, verse 1 and verse 2 that says this. Maybe you hear a similarity with what we just read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 1 could maybe be one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. It is, after all, the very first verse in the Bible. The Bible opens in this dramatic fashion, introducing us to the very beginning, a beginning that was begun by one who was outside of time and space. He began the beginning. He created the very first point in time. In the beginning was God, the eternal God, the one true God, the God over everything and the God over everyone, the creator God, the God who creates all things. This word here at the very beginning, that God created, that word created is only ever in the Old Testament 
used of God. God is always the subject of that verb created. So this creative power of God is reserved for him and for him alone. And then we have this phrase that he created the heavens and the earth. It's meant to encapsulate everything that we would ever know or discover in the created realm. I wonder if we would ever marvel at the sheer enormity of all that God created, that we would ever marvel at the task that God created everything. God is bigger and greater than the heavens and the earth. It puts us in our proper, puny place. God is big. We are but a speck in the universe that he created. You ever marvel at that in your life? Day by day. Genesis 1.1, there are two major interpretations. There are other interpretations, but there are two major main interpretations of this verse. Some would say that Genesis 1.1 is what's called a summary verse. So, they would say that it summarizes all of the divine acts that take place in the, in the chapter, that first chapter of Genesis. So that Genesis 1.1 then is... Describing everything summarizes chapter 2 through verse 31. The summary view says this. Verse 1 does not describe the very first event that led to the creation of the earth in its unformed state in verse 2. Rather, the act of making things starts with verse 3. And so the people in this camp say that Genesis 1, 1 offers no comment on how the unformed earth of verse 2 came into being. So, I would say I do not hold to that interpretation. I hold to what is called the initiation view, which says this. Genesis 1.1 describes the initial event among God's acts of creation. And so then that first initial act is right after Genesis 1.1 in Genesis 1.2. What is Genesis 1.1 describing? Starts right there with Genesis 2. You see it in the next verse. You even see the connections. God created the heavens and the earth. And what's the next thing that verse 2 says? The earth. There's a connection. There's a link right there. And then it describes what this earth is like. And I think verse 2 might be one of the most glossed over or quickly passed over verses in the Bible. Take a moment. Just look at that verse. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's ask ourselves just a very simple question. Who created the earth without form and void? Who created the deep? The deep here associated with the sea or waters. Who, who is it that created the earth in this way? It is no one other than God. He created the world without form and void. In a word, he created it uninhabitable. Some commentators have even called this chaos. And now we must be careful here because in this chaos, we're not saying that it was evil. 
God created it. Evil would not be introduced until chapter 3 of Genesis. But even in the way that it's written, there has, it, there's this foreboding and chaotic sound to it. This without form and void is the Hebrew words tohu wabohu. It sounds ominous. It sounds threatening. It sounds despairing. But there's a play on words. This tohu wabohu would be transformed, would be changed. The tohu, that's the without form, would be changed to tob or good. Later, very good. It's here in this desolate and lifeless earth where there was a ray of hope. You see that, don't you? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God was separate and distinct, set apart from the tohu wabohu. The Spirit could also be breath. And so we wait with anticipation for the breath of God that is about to speak. He is about to speak and bring forth order, bringing forth cosmos from chaos. He is about to speak to speak form into the formless, to speak to fill the void. He's about to speak to bring light into the darkness, about to speak to tame the restless deep. God spoke and step by step, word by word, turned that which was without form and void into that which has order, that which is good, that which is right, into cosmos. If that is how God did it at the beginning, why would we think that it would be any different now? If God did it by a word then, in the very beginning, he does it by a word now. And this word is not merely the speech or the vocalization of God. This is the word embodied. This is the word made flesh. This is the word that is no one other than Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the word, assures us of the final and full establishment of everything that is right and true, all that is ordered, all that is peaceful. In that one word again, cosmos. And that's where we are when we get to John 1. The Apostle John wants us to know the complete assurance that you can have in your life because of the Word. Jesus Christ Himself being the Word is what brings assurance to our life. Is that what you need today? Is that what you need in your life right now? Is that what our world needs right now? Why does John start with this? Because he knows that our world is going to need assurance, and so there's no better place for him to start than with the Word of ultimate assurance, Jesus Christ. There was certainty in Genesis 1.1. And there is certainty that comes with John 1.1. And so I want us to focus this morning on three ways that Jesus, as the Word, brings assurance to our lives. Three ways that spring out of these verses that we've already read. Number one, you can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. But number one, 
Jesus as the Word assures us of God's promises. Jesus as the Word assures us of God's promises. You know, people make promises in your life. I promise, I promise. I have to promise things to my wife and I often fail. (laughs) Jesus, as the word, assures us of God's promises because he fulfills all of God's promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's in Christ. That is why It is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises made throughout the Old Testament have been echoing throughout the centuries and now John says with the coming of Jesus Christ, with the coming of the word, God is fulfilling all of those promises. God is keeping his promises and keeps them through the person and work of Jesus Christ and specifically here John highlights two promises. The first of God's promises that we are assured will be kept through the word is the promise of the new creation. This is why John starts his gospel the way that he does. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It's meant to correlate to the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Just as the Bible began with the initial creation event, so now John says The coming of the word is the final creation event. It is the new creation, the new creation that we've been waiting for. It's the new creation that we've been promised. The certainty of this new creation that Jesus brings is grounded upon his involvement in the initial creation. Do you hear that? The assurance of the new creation that Jesus brings is grounded in his involvement in the initial creation of everything. He was in the beginning, not as one who is created, but he was there in the beginning with God, the eternal God, and so he also is eternal himself. He was with God, in relation with God, and not merely in relation, but this word says, was God. It is a clear expression that Jesus is God. He is divine. And it was He who created all things. It was His divine action that brought everything into existence. Jesus is the agent of creation. He is the Word, and God's Word is performative. That is, it performs what is said. Your word and my word can't do that. Our words aren't performative. As I was reminded by one pastor recently, his household and my household must be very similar because we can't even do that with our own kids. Our words are not performative. They do not possess that kind of power or authority. But when God's word goes forth, things happen. God's word is effective. God's word speaks and calls things into existence out of nothing. And so with God's word then is this prominent place in the universe and this prominent place in our lives. The word was preeminent 
in the initial creation. And so will the Word be prominent and have preeminence in the new creation. How do you know? How do you know if you are a new creation in Christ? This is the promise that we have as believers. That we are new creations in Christ Jesus. How do you know if you're part of this new creation that comes through Jesus Christ? A very simple question. Is the word preeminent in your life? Does the word have first place? And correspondingly, does Jesus have first place? How do you know if you're a new creation? Your desires, your affections, your wants are to obey the Word who is Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. I'm sorry, this is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who created, or who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus, as the word of the new creation, is going to accomplish everything needed to see it brought to complete fulfillment and fruition. Jesus, as the word, makes us new creations. It's he who gives us a new heart, who puts the spirit of the living God in us. It is he who removes the heart of stone. It is the word who calls forth people who are lifeless and dead in their transgressions and sins and who forgives them and who gives them the gift of repentance and faith and ultimately who gives them eternal life. Yes, it is the word, Jesus Christ, who assures us of God's promise of the new creation. But the second, second promise that we have, that we are assured of, that will be kept through the word, is the promise of the new covenant. Where do we see this promise in these verses? You see it in those little words that describe Jesus in verse 14. It says that he is full of grace and truth. Later, you see it again in verse 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God sending his son, his only son, his unique, one-of-a-kind son, was a demonstration of his covenant faithfulness to his people. It was through Jesus Christ that God would covenant with his own, would commit to his own, would care for his own. It is these words, grace and truth, that have an allusion to the Old Testament. It comes from that event when God showed his glory to Moses there in Exodus 34. And do you remember that event when, when God places Moses there in the cleft of the rock and says, I will allow my backside to pass before you. and You will be able to see just a glimpse, a little bit of my glory. And as that was taking place, the Lord proclaimed his name. And this is what it says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in what? In steadfast love and faithfulness. 
It's those two words, steadfast love and faithfulness, that correspond to this idea picked up by John of grace and truth. How is God's steadfast love displayed to us? It's displayed to us through his grace. Why is God's love steadfast? Why is it consistent? Why does it never fail? Why does it never end? Why does it never give up on us? It's all because of grace, because God's love of us doesn't depend upon us. It depends upon him. If it was dependent upon me to earn God's love, I never would earn God's love. I would never deserve God's love. God's steadfast love endures forever because God endures forever. It's not only this love that comes to us, but it's also faithfulness, or as John states it, truth. How is God's covenant faithfulness expressed to us? It's expressed through truth. God does not faithfully lead us and faithfully care for us by leading us into error, by deceiving us, by providing false notions about what this world is really like or about who you really are. No, he leads us in truth. He leads us to what is true. He gives us the proper understanding of this world and of our own selves and of our own life. And it's such a truth that sets us free Jesus, being the Word who became flesh, is the full manifestation of grace and truth. Do you want to know what grace looks like? Do you want to know truth? Where are you going to find those in their fullest and most complete expression? You're going to find them only in Jesus Christ. He is the greatest possible expression of God's compassion for people and the most perfect way for conveying the truth to their understanding. God sending His Son was to show His covenantal faithfulness to us. He had not given up on us. He is still completely committed to us. And so He sent the Word in the flesh, the only Son full of grace and truth, so that way we could know grace and truth, so that we could, what does it say? Receive grace and truth so that we would be incorporated into a better covenant, a new covenant, a covenant that was sealed and confirmed not by the blood of goats and sheep, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Word Himself. He is our covenant head, and it's because of Him that we receive grace upon grace. Here it is, God's unmerited, undeserved favor. It is God's favor heaped upon you because of Christ. It's another layer of grace, and another layer of grace, and another layer of grace. Imagine what it is that you would wish for, that you could have a never-ending supply of. What is that? What do you say? If I could have a never-ending supply of fill-in-the-blank, what would it be? I would dare say that all worldly and temporal things we might wish for would eventually get old. They would wear out. We would get tired of them. But listen, listen, dear brother and sister, to what the life of the believer is like. 
we have received grace upon grace. This is grace that is never extinguished. It is a fountain of grace that will not run dry. Christian, you have a never-ending supply of God's grace. How is that possible? It's possible because Jesus Christ fulfilled the promise of the new covenant and now serves as the mediator of this covenant so that now we can receive this promised eternal inheritance so that now as those who receive grace upon grace, we can confidently approach the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. Are you in need? Where do you go? You only find help from the throne of grace. And it's like grace is flowing from this throne continually. You might feel like that's your daily prayer. God, I need help today. What does God say? Here's more grace. Here's more grace. Here's never-ending grace. Look to Jesus, who is the Word, and rest assured that God, who makes His promises, has kept His promises so that you can trust Him. The new creation, the new covenant are highly personal because our lives depend upon them. Do not miss and do not dismiss God's promises. They are for you. They are for your life. Number two. Jesus as the word assures us of God's sovereignty. Jesus as the word assures us of God's sovereignty. In John 1, 3, we, we read this, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus, who is said to be the word, reminds us of the 10 words that were spoken in creation. In fact, if you read Genesis chapter 1, it says 10 times, and God said, and God said. Ten times because it gives us a picture of completion. It gives us a picture of wholeness. In fact, you can think of another ten words, can't you, in the Bible? The Ten Commandments. God spoke, and at the end there was nothing left to create. God spoke, and God's word brought cosmos, order, things that were very good. And it's highlighted by him resting from his work on the seventh day. Jesus, being the word, tells us that he is the great creator. This is where Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1 line up. What does Genesis 1 tell us besides the fact that God created everything? It makes us aware of God's sovereignty. From the very beginning of the Bible, we have the strong and undeniable assertion of God's absolute and divine uh, sovereignty. And authority, but sovereignty. He is the one true God who controls and rules over everything. And it is God who brings about His will. So God created all things and so His sovereignty extends to all things. We are given this image in Genesis 1, of a powerful 
sovereign who utters a decree from the throne and in the very utterance of the thing it is done. When we come to John 1.3, we see this truth continue with the Word. He created all things, so then the Word is sovereign over all things. Jesus, as the Word, has authority over everything. Nothing is outside of His control. Nothing is outside of His grasp. There are not dueling sovereigns in the universe. There is one sovereign who rules over all, and He is ruling, and all His enemies will eventually be placed underneath His feet. This is under attack today, dear brothers and sisters. This is under attack because there are people who would dare say that God is not sovereign over everything. There are people who would dare say that God is not in control of all things. Do you find a problem with that? Does that disturb you? Let me tell you, if God is not sovereign over everything, if he is not in control of everything, there is reason to stay up at night. There is reason to lose sleep. But if God is sovereign, if the word is sovereign over everything, then go to bed. If God is sovereign over everything, then what does tomorrow hold that I need to worry about? And let us remember this truth, that there are not dueling sovereigns in this world. There are not two competing sovereigns fighting against each other, like in Star Wars with the good force and the bad force. The Word is the only sovereign. And I fear... I fear the greatest threat to our lives is not that we believe that there are dueling sovereigns of God and Satan, not that there are dueling sovereigns between good and evil, not that there are dueling sovereigns between us Christians and the world, but the dueling sovereigns that are vying for your life and my life are between God and you. That's our problem, brother and sister. We want to be the other sovereign. We want to be the other person in control. We want to be the one to take away God's control and say, I think I know better. I think I know the way that it should be. I know the way that I want it to take place. I want to know, I, I know what's most comfortable for me. Is that the dueling sovereign in your life? It's not Satan. It's not evil. It's not the world. It's yourself. Where you would say, no, God is sovereign. God's in control. The word is over everything. And what does the Bible say? All of his enemies, all of Jesus' enemies will be placed underneath his feet. Whoever sets themselves up as a dueling sovereign of the Lord Jesus Christ, the end is not good. So let's not fight against it. Let's say, 
we trust. We trust in God's sovereignty. We trust in the sovereignty of the word and let it bring assurance to our life. Let it bring relief. Let it bring peace. Number three, Jesus as the word assures us of God's presence. Jesus as the word assures us of God's presence. Finally, we see the incarnation of Christ in verse 14 in John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word here we find to be the pre-existent word. He is the eternal word. The word became flesh. And when the word became flesh, he did not cease to be the word. John John wants to show us that the word entered in human history in the person of Jesus Christ. The whole of the gospel centers around this incarnate word. John and the other apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus. And when Jesus dwelt among them, it does not merely mean that Jesus lived among them while he did, but there is an idea here from the Old Testament. It says that Jesus tabernacled among them. It reminds us of the tabernacle that Moses was instructed to build in the wilderness, the place where the very presence of God was said to reside. And so the word dwelling among them was the very presence of God in their midst, God dwelling with them, God dwelling with man. The whole point of human history, the whole point that they were looking forward to, it is that which was lost when Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden. It's where man longs to be in good, perfect, holy, glorious presence of God. This is now the way to God's presence through the Word made flesh, through Jesus Christ. It's He who tore down the dividing wall between God and man so that now we are able to stand in the very presence of the almighty, infinite God. What attends God dwelling with man? What happens when God dwells with man? Well, we get God, we also get His glory, don't we? John and the apostles saw the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They caught a glimpse of it, but one day we will see it in a new heavens, in a new earth, in a much fuller, more complete way. Think about it, where there's no need of sun or moon because there's another light, there's another glory that's brighter than the sun. As we read through John 1, verses 14 through 18, we collect various indications about just how great Jesus is. And these indications tell us how great Jesus is as compared to Moses. So let's think about it here as we go through verses 14 through 18. Moses was commanded by God to build the tabernacle so that God could dwell among his people. Jesus is the tabernacle or temple where God's presence resides among his people and where we meet God. Moses saw a mere glimpse, just the backside of God and God's glory because no one could see God in his full glory and live. Jesus displays the glory of God in full brightness and makes it so that we can know God to the the fullest extent that is possible right now. Now all who look to Jesus live. 
Moses gave the law. The law was good, but it was never meant to take away sin. It was only meant to show you your sin. The law was meant to drive you to Christ. Now, a better covenant, grace and truth, came through Jesus Christ. Jesus can now forgive your sin. Jesus can now give you his righteousness. Jesus makes it possible for you to stand before the holy God as one who is not condemned, as one who is free of guilt, as one who is innocent. It is this word, this only Son of God, who has made the Father known to us. He has, as it says here in verse 18, he has exegeted or he has explained God to us. If you want to know God, who he is, what he is like, if you want to have a relationship with God to be a part of his family as a child of God, then you have to know Christ. Left to ourselves, we would be dead in our sins ungodly enemies of God. The presence of God then, a holy God, is a terrifying thought. But with the word incarnate, with the word becoming flesh and giving us access to the presence of God, more than that, causing the very presence of God now to reside in us is meant to bring assurance to our hearts and minds. God is not far from us. When the world is thrown into confusion and disorder, when the world is disseminating lies and falsehood, when it appears that the world has gone crazy and that evil is called good and good is called evil, when everything seems to be out of place and out of control, when mourning and sadness and sin and death fill up our view, when brokenness is attached to everything around you, when you feel the weight of chaos, when you think that you are but a smoldering wick of a candle that is just about to go out, be encouraged, draw strength, find comfort, to know that you are not alone. Not only do you have access into the very presence of God, but God's presence, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is in you. He's in you and attends to you. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is the Word. And He's the Word there to assure your drowning soul that you are His and that He will never let you go. Listen to what it says in Matthew 12, verses 18 through 21. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. I wonder if that's you today. That bruised reed. That smoldering wick. The weight of life. The weight of the chaos. The weight of the broken world is upon you. You feel like you're about to go out. Like you're about to break. Oftentimes when we're at that point, we can think, I just want to get out of this. I just want, to, I just want this to be done. But maybe that's right where God wants you. Because it's right there that you have to depend upon Him. 
It's right there that you have to find your assurance from Him. Being a bruised reed and being a smoldering wick starts at the very beginning of the Christian life. Think about that reed, a small reed that you could hold in your hand. This reed is damaged and broken. Oftentimes we want to think about ourselves like a tree, strong. But that's not where the Christian life begins. The Christian life begins as that bruised reed. Saying, I cannot do this on my own. I'm a sinner. I've sinned against God. I've gone against His ways. I need to find forgiveness. I need to find healing. And the Word, Jesus Christ, takes that bruised reed, takes that smoldering wick that's about to go out and cares for it and does not break it all the way and does not extinguish it. He cares for it. And he brings assurance, security, stability, and peace. If you are a smoldering wick, if you are a bruised reed, don't lose hope. Let's pray. Father, we need the Word, Jesus Christ, to be the Word of assurance in our lives. To be the Word that says all of the promises are being fulfilled. To be the Word of assurance that says God is in control. To be the word of assurance that says God is with us. That you will never leave us. That you will never forsake us. That when we feel like we are alone, that we must remind ourselves we are never alone. Where can we go to flee from your presence? There's nowhere. And Father, let us say we would never want to be anywhere else than in your presence. So Father, let the word be our hope today as we hold fast to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.